Good afternoon, good morning, good evening, wherever you may be in the world among uh, the listeners of this National Council on U.S.-Arab Relations <clears throat> webinar, a Zoom uh, cerebral massage, an intellectual examination of uh, concentration on uh, one of the most strategically vital places on the planet. We're not talking about something marginal or peripheral, geographically, demographically, technologically, or militaristically, or strategically. Um, before going further, I want to wish all of our adherents to the Muslim faith of the two billion uh, uh, adherents worldwide uh, an Eid al-Adha uh, for this uh, uh, blessed uh, celebration um, at, at incumbent upon all the faithful uh, worldwide. Uh, today, <clears throat> we're focusing on a country that is as misunderstood perhaps as any uh, with which the United States is concerned. Uh, stop short of saying with which the United States has a relationship. A relationship uh, it has, but for the last uh, 42 years, uh, that relationship has been troubled, uh, laced with strife and tension, uh, riddled uh, and laden uh, with uh, sanctions, and, and no end of uh, uh, both sides engaging in provocation or antagonism or insulting, reciprocal and unilateral and otherwise, the one uh, to the other. When the United States invaded and commenced its occupation of Iraq in uh, March 2003, uh, yours truly <clears throat> was uh, privileged uh, to be present at uh, all of the Gulf Cooperation Council annual ministerial and heads of state summits. And for several years thereafter, a running joke was that, look everyone, uh, the United States invaded Iraq and Iran won. And it won without firing a single bullet or shedding a single drop of blood. And search the library holdings as one will, and one would be hard pressed to find two self-proclaimed adversaries where among <clears throat> millions of each of their citizens, uh, there were those who hated the other the most at the tip of the spirit, at the top of the list of their adversaries, their enemies, uh, their, uh, uh, their critics, uh, where one, the greater power, gave to the lesser power a gift of that magnitude. And it wasn't just Iraq. Since then, we've had the Iranian high-ranking officials claim to have unprecedented influence in four Arab capitals, uh, including Beirut, Damascus, Sana'a, Baghdad, and also in Hamas in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. There's no precedent uh, for this in terms of strategic reversals and setbacks uh, for the United States, unless one points to the current decision to withdraw from Afghanistan, also a lesser power, to withdraw from Iraq, another lesser power, 
a generation ago from Vietnam, yet another lesser power. And one could add others to that particular list, including Syria, to a lesser extent, perhaps Yemen. So with regard to <clears throat> Iran, this uh, would rank amongst the country about which the United States media has published the most, and yet the American body, body, body politic has understood the least. My name, by the way, is John Duke Anthony, and I'm the founding president and chief executive officer of the National Council on U.S.-Arab Relations. <clears throat> We have with us today Dr. Anthony Quartersman, who has for decades now <clears throat> held the Arlie Burke Chair at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. <clears throat> He'll be focusing on aspects of, but not exclusively focused upon, the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action that was agreed to <clears throat> six years ago this month uh, with the five permanent members of the United Nations Security Council plus Germany <clears throat> that placed severe restrictions on Iran's ability to uh, pursue or tended to uh, pursue the path it was then on with regard to its nuclear development uh, process. Uh, in terms of the amount of time it would take for Iran to break out uh, and build a nuclear uh, weapon. It also agreed to some of the most intrusive inspections in the history of the International Atomic Energy Agency based in Vienna, where up until a month ago, we had entered into renewed talks with Iran's representatives to ascertain the prospects for America's return and Iran's full return to that agreement of 2015. Those talks were stalled in June and they remain stalled now, but for a reason, not out of whim, but allegedly because Iran has just had elections and it has a new president and it takes time, as we have seen in the United States in the aftermath of the demise of the Trump administration and the onset of the Biden administration, where the transition cannot be said even now to yet be fully complete. So there's much work at hand, much work in front of us. Now, among the concerns on the part of those not privy to the agreement are all of Iran's Arab neighbors, none of whom were uh, allowed to audit, let alone be participants uh, in these talks that went on for the better part of a decade uh, with Muscat Oman playing a, a central role and the low-key negotiations that led to that agreement that had a sunset clause, but nonetheless severely restrained what Iran could do and could not do with regard to its nuclear program. Those countries have added that in addition to the nuclear concerns, 
They are those of ballistic missile capacities of a conventional nature on the part of Iran that can target all of the GCC countries and beyond. Israel forces a comparable concern, though it is geographically somewhat further uh, removed. And then there are those who bemoan Iran's support for so-called proxies or minority groups or extremist militant elements amongst those groups in various countries, Yemen being one, a neighbor of two GCC countries, Iran and Saudi Arabia, but also Bahrain, uh, a neighbor also of uh, Saudi Arabia and, and Qatar, uh, and uh, intimately related historically and in terms of the ruling families uh, with uh, Kuwait. Uh, we have a congressional dynamic in this where it is said that it is easy for a government to slap sanctions on another country and oftentimes it's done for domestic polit political reasons uh, to appear in a macho posture uh, as though one is doing something and not idling at the intersection. Uh, but to be removed from sanctions uh, more nearly would take an act of God. And uh, this is to but italicize, neonize, and capitalize the difficulty of whether or not the United States can re-enter the joint comprehensive plan of action and whether Iran can re-enter it, given the politics domestic and otherwise in their countries. Uh, without further ado, uh, we'll switch to Dr. Cordesman, a resource specialist for this session. Uh, for many other people that the National Council parades before its audience of tens of thousands of followers, viewers, and listeners. One can say so-and-so is the author of several books. There are few and far between where one can say <laughs> the resource specialist is the author of dozens of books, which is what one can say in the case of Dr. Anthony uh, Cordesman. We're going to have uh, as a moderator, uh, Colonel David DeRoche, who's an associate professor at the Center for Near East and South Asia Studies at the National Defense University, which is an arm of the US Department of Defense. Uh, Colonel DeRoche is also a National Council <clears throat> US Air Relations Senior Fellow in International Affairs. Uh, he's also an Army Ranger. And like Dr. Cordesman, he's a practitioner of that which he preaches and concentrates teaches and researches and writes about. And uh, we are aware of the value of theoreticians, but we place much greater value on those who have empirical experience to combine it with them. Both Dr. Gordisman and Colonel LaRoche have each. Without further ado, Dr. Gordisman. Thank you very much, John. I think that when we talk about Iran's nuclear posture and its military posture, it's important to highlight a point you made. This agreement was formulated at a time when Iran's primary constraint was the ability to produce fissile material. 
In some ways, it still is. But as we review it, it's important to note that Iran was almost certainly at least examining nuclear options when I was serving in Iran at the embassy in the early 1970s. And there actually was a brief CIA unclassified report talking about the Shah and nuclear systems. This is not a new effort. It almost certainly was renewed as a result of the Iran-Iraq war, the use of chemical weapons by Iraq against Iran. But it is one where Iran has had to consider not only how to get fissile material, but how to actually get a weapon, which is very different. Even today, designing a fission nuclear weapon, particularly one that fits on a missile, is an incredibly challenging task. And one that pursues or requires an almost completely different level of effort from producing fissile material. This is a critical issue because in all of the public discussion of the JCPOA, there's been no reference at all to how far Iran has gotten in designing an actual nuclear weapon or a nuclear warhead. And this is at least as critical as fissile material. Now, the issues we have today that are not public, that are in the negotiation, are can we extend the time limits in the agreement in ways which ensure that it will be effective, and if so, how. There are also what happens to the fact that as a result of our withdrawing from the agreement, there now is uranium which has been enriched to over 60%. We don't know how much in terms of this added area, but here are comments. A sophisticated nuclear weapon does need very highly enriched uranium. People sometimes use 90%. And virtually all of the joint data focuses on that. You can make a nuclear device with 60% enrichment, which Iran now has. It probably will never fit on a missile or be an effective bomb. But the question of what you're doing when you acquire a nuclear device for Iran is critical because Iran can rush out to create some kind of nuclear weapon. And that does not mean it has something that it can actually deliver or a force that can't be preempted or would allow it to actually provide a major deterrent threat. There's been no estimation recently of what Iran would have to do to create a survivable nuclear force and one that could intimidate and be effective without essentially creating a suicidal vulnerability to preemption. And there have been only speculative estimates of what it would take to create some kind of fissile device that would explode 
and none of how long it would take to get an actual missile warhead or a functioning bomb. We are not quite sure whether the Iraq plutonium reactor has been modified to the point where it can't get plutonium. Some of the reports that it hasn't seem to be exaggerated, but it is an issue. We don't actually know with precision how far Iran has gotten in recent years in developing more advanced centrifuges. It's obvious that they are far more advanced than the ones it began with, and it is talking about a whole new generation. But whether this will be limited effectively by any new version of JCPOA simply isn't clear. John mentioned the inspection routines. The problem is that with the progress they've made, you need new inspection routines. There's been no public discussion of what those might be and how effective they might be. But the original ones would probably not have kept Iran from running a covert program to design a weapon as distinguished from produce fissile material. A lot of this can be done passively. It doesn't require fissile material. And a lot of these tests are in the open literature. You really have almost no idea on what the time limits may be if any new criteria are added. And no one has discussed what will happen if Iran is detected in violating the agreement or if it refuses to allow proper inspection. We can go on to the next slide. The problems that we really face are ones John also touched on. How does this fit into Iran's broader military activities? It has demonstrated it can now hit critical industrial targets with its missiles in Saudi Arabia, that it can distribute those missiles to the Houthi in Yemen. It potentially can provide those missiles to Syria or to Iraq if it can get suitable levels of influence. These don't just include ballistic missiles, they include drones or what we call unmanned combat aerial vehicles. The problem is, it is one thing to launch a nuclear weapon against anyone in the Gulf or Israel. It's essentially an almost suicidal invitation to nuclear retaliation. Destroying several billion dollars worth of petroleum equipment with conventional warheads is a very different story. How do you retaliate? What do you do? What happens if it's a proxy? Another country that Iran has armed? We do know in the past, Iran has not been able to modernize its other weapons. But now the UN limits on Russia and China and exports to Iran have expired. They're a different agreement from the JCPOA. So what will happen with the massive arms race going on in the Gulf? 
it is one on the Arab side, which basically is spending over $100 billion on new weapons, virtually without any real coordination between the members of the Gulf Cooperation Council, and often in ways which do not perhaps make as much sense as one would hope. On the other hand, Iran, by focusing on missiles, a threat of irregular warfare from ships, missiles, aircraft in the Gulf and the Indian Ocean, the Red Sea, has its own maritime threat. And it has, again, not only the ability to ship missiles, but other weapons, including precision short-range tactical systems to the Hezbollah in Lebanon, Hamas, Yemen, Syria, and Iraq. We have here the real problem that even if the JCPOA is put back into practice, we first don't know how effective it will be. And second, it will not affect any other aspect of the military capabilities in the Gulf. And it won't affect what probably is the most credible threat to 20% of the world's petroleum exports, which is Iran's conventionally armed missiles rather than its nuclear systems. Further, we really don't know what the US posture in the Gulf will be. We have no clear new strategic agreement with Iran. We have not worked out a clear pattern of force improvements or deployments with our allies, the Arab states in the Gulf and allies like Jordan. The role of Israel remains uncertain. And so in many ways does the US naval posture in the region. Next slide, please. Iran's conventional nuclear options, I think it really is critical to start thinking about this. People keep talking about how much people spend on arms imports and they never seem to talk about possible wars, combats, or patterns of escalation. Yet we know these exist. We know there are great uncertainties. No one knows where Iraq will be in two years, Lebanon, Syria, Yemen. All of these are countries which potentially can alter the military balance. Well, there were efforts to make the Gulf Cooperation Council a more effective military alliance. By and large, none of these have actually really worked. To some extent, Oman stands aside from the UAE and Saudi Arabia. The UAE and Saudi Arabia have not fully coordinated. Saudi Arabia does not share all of its air defense data with Bahrain. There are major problems in naval modernization. And as we look at both the nuclear and conventional missiles, we have some intentions within the Arab states to buy ballistic missile defenses that are more advanced than they have today. 
but there is no coherent plan that ties together the Arab states and the United States in missile defense, rocket defense, dealing with unmanned aerial vehicles. And these require different approaches to defense, depending on whether you are dealing with an Iran that is thinking or has nuclear capabilities and conventional capabilities. You do, in the Arab states, have probably some of the most vulnerable and high cost ground targets in the world. These include desalination plants. They include one of a kind, critically expensive gas and oil plants, many of which have very long replacement times. This whole issue of vulnerability is something that no one has actually addressed, at least in the open literature. And it's certainly not in the depth that's required. And just to make a point that is often lost here, this doesn't require some side type of highly sophisticated satellite effort. If you have a cell phone and you happen to have access to any of these industrial facilities, your cell phone can get the precise GPS coordinates simply by being there next to the component. These all are issues which we now need to address. Now, very quickly, let me just highlight the missile issue. The next slide shows the range. And as John Duke pointed out, the ranges already cover a very broad part of the region. And relatively quickly, Iran is estimated to have a capability to deploy missiles with ranges of up to 5,000 kilometers. We already know they can hit critical targets and give them to other countries to hit. That's shown in the next slide. Then finally, one thing that has to be, I think, understood is Iran's perspective on this. Since roughly 1991, Iran has had very, very limited access to modern arms. It's gotten some elements of more advanced land-based air defenses. It has some Russian systems that are more modern, but these are export aircraft with the exception of SU-25s. They're not as advanced and they are not really even fourth generation fighters. So if you look at those data for Iran, the bulk of its air force are aircraft that either were on order or had been delivered when I was serving in Iran in the early 70s. Fighter planes age in dog years. They are not something you keep even if you modify them. And look at the Gulf delivery. There is a lack of coordination, common training, and interoperability. But these are some of the most advanced fighters in the world. So Iran can't give up its conventional missiles as part of the JCPOA without virtually making itself vulnerable 
without effective defenses to the Gulf states. And that simply highlights the linkages here. So with that, it's a complex situation. It's not easy to understand. Unfortunately, David will find a way to make it more intelligible. Colonel DeRoche, your turn to respond. Well, Thank you. Thank you. I uh, appreciate the charge that's been placed in me. Um, first off, I have to say that my remarks do not reflect any agency of the United States government. I should point out, I only refer to myself as colonel when I'm talking to a lieutenant colonel who's given me a hard time, or if I'm at KFC and I get an extra drumstick. Um, uh, Tony Cordesman is obviously one of the eminence guis uh, here in Washington, and now you know why. Uh, let me commend to you the uh, uh, publication on which this is done. He periodically puts things out, and normally I have to tell you they're great to read, but if you're in a foreign country, beware of the data costs. Uh, one, you know, They can be up to 50 pages long. One of my friends got a $35 roaming fee for data. This is only 19 pages, so it's a good uh, afternoon uh, think piece, and I commend it to all of you. Um, so I'm going to use the privilege of the chair and ask the first question. Uh, the document and the presentation rest in large parts. Actually, I'm going to ask two questions, but I'll do them separately. The document and the presentation rest in large parts on deterrence. What is taken to deter Iran? How can Iran deter uh, its regional countries and the United States from attacking it? Deterrence rests on rationality. Is it safe to say that Iran, can we assume that Iran and can we assume that the United States, for that matter, are rational actors? And thus, does deterrence apply or not apply? I think the answer is yes, you can assume they're rational. The problem is that escalation historically has often been escalation between rational countries under very difficult circumstances where all of the facts aren't clear, where one side may take an act that it calculates rationally is limited and will not provoke a path of escalation and escalation follows by the other side, which is much steeper or in different areas from what one side calculates. The whole idea that war is a rational process misses the reality that it is a very uncertain process the fog of war dominates, you can only be as rational as your information is. Now, if you, for example, fire an unguided missile and it hits a critical target, one side may perceive that as a very deliberate act of escalation. If you threaten to use nuclear weapons, a country like Israel may choose to preempt. If it preempts the wrong place, you may feel compelled to launch that weapon if you're Iran. And that may seem perfectly rational within the situation of a nuclear war that is essentially based on miscalculation. These are not things you can predict. We can game them, we can do it with strategic planning, but I think one of the lessons you learn very early on in this business is the odds of something you don't predict actually happening are at least as great 
as the odds of the most likely scenario occurring. As a War College professor, I uh, applaud the uh, Clausewitzian implications of your answer. So uh, thank you for that. Second question, uh, in the course of your presentation, uh, you, I, I'm drawing the strong uh, influence or inference that uh, perhaps we're missing the force for the trees, that we're focusing on the JCPOA, uh, perhaps because, uh, you know, the damnatio memoriae of the Trump years, uh, that it's been fetishized and that the terms of the original JCPOA are not what's important and that perhaps our, our efforts to reinvigorate that are aimed, you know, our efforts are aimed at the wrong target. Um, should we uh, just shift focus and uh, accept the JCPOA as a, a past, uh, past history and uh, focus on a different agreement looking at more um, suitable terms? I think one has to be very careful. It's all very easy to talk about a new agreement, but it's difficult enough to try to go back to one you've already agreed to. And I think with a new government in Iran, they may be able to compromise on the existing agreement. And it is important because it does place critical limits potentially on fissile material. If those limits can be made to work, the other things Iran can do will speed up its ability to become a real nuclear power, but it would still take it some time. Having one bomb doesn't make you a nuclear power. As Henry Kissinger pointed out, the threat of committing suicide is not much of a deterrent to being murdered. And basically using your one or two or three nuclear weapons almost ensures that Iran cities become nuclear targets and the cost to Iran is immeasurably high. I yep. think that, so I think in that sense, yes, we need to go on with this agreement. And just one last point, people forget that our first nuclear agreement with Russia only limited delivery systems. And it did so at a time both the United States and Russia, our former Soviet Union, all rushed out to put as many MIRV weapons on these missiles as possible. So the end result of our first arms control agreement was a vast increase in the number of nuclear warheads deployed on both sides. Arms control agreements are compromises. They always involve that. And the idea you can go to a perfect agreement is to say you'll have no agreement ever. Mm -hmm. um, questions from the field now. Um, the US withdrawal from Afghanistan, does that strengthen, weaken our position or is it neutral? I think it is relatively neutral. The question is what do we do with the posture we keep in the Gulf region? How well do we work with our Arab strategic partners? How well do we work with Israel? How willing are we to compromise? Can we create a strategic partnership that's enduring and functional with Iraq? Can you find some resolution to Yemen? What on earth will happen in Syria if Assad 
actually defeats the remaining resistance in Idlib. And he has the ability to basically work directly with an Iran and Iraq as some kind of functional entity in strategic terms. What will Turkey's role be? I think these are the critical issues. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What advice, again, from the field, what advice would you have for the USA negotiating team in confronting the new Iranian regime? I think that one key issue is to stop using words like terrorism and realize that what we need is some kind of functional agreement. It is a hostile regime. It is not going to be a friendly one in the foreseeable future. But it is a regime which has real needs in terms of its economy, real options other than nuclear weapons. And where at some point, if we can find a way to build on the limited dialogue that existed, for example, between Oman and Iran, the contacts that Saudi Arabia has made with Iran, move towards some broader form of moderation and agreement that deals with more than the nuclear dimension that will serve our interests far better than either creating a situation which again goes back to the equivalent of maximum pressure. And John Duke Anthony highlighted how many gains Iran has made, or which simply blocks any real possibility to move forward. We have to be much more careful to show the Iranian people that we are offering real alternatives that will benefit them economically and will not threaten them security. And we need to show the regime that it may be better to deal with us. Whether it will do so, of course, is a highly uncertain proposition. That leads into the next question also from the audience. What cards does Iran hold in the negotiations and what do they need? And perhaps you could speak a little bit about the economic situation in Iran since you raised it. Well, I think the economic situation is, I won't say necessarily dire, but it is certainly not good. It's critical in many areas and it affects many aspects of Iranian lives. And if you look at the World Bank or IMF analyses or private analyses by the economist or other sources, you begin to realize how much pressure the Iranian people are under. The difficulty is that Iran has basically, as a government, gone on funding military efforts, gone on expanding its relationships in strategic terms with Yemen, with Hamas, with Syria, with Iraq, Hezbollah, all of these structures. So the question is not whether Iran can go on in many ways dealing with 
this situation, the regime can do it and the people will suffer. And it has to be said that the regime has gotten steadily better at internal security, has made major increases in its internal security efforts. There is also the question of China and a potential economic sort of relationship between China and Iran that could solve a lot of Iran's financial problems if China chooses to do it. We don't know whether that agreement will function, but you can't disregard it. It is an option, even if it would mean China partially alienating some of the Arab states. Yeah. Um, so what cards do you think Iran has in negotiations with um, the West and what cards do we have? What do, what do you think would be their strongest um, cards to, to put forward in ours? I think you have to remember at this point in time when we talk about the nuclear, their strongest card is they don't really need a nuclear weapon with precision guided conventional missiles and other strike systems. They can afford to compromise if the JCPOA does give them economic options, the regime can actually use those options to help the people, the economy, Iran's overall development without necessarily surrendering its ability to compete with the United States and the Arab states in the Gulf. That the problem with that for everyone is, do we go on with an arms race? Do we go on building up other sources of threat it is an incredibly expensive investment to try to create in the Arab Gulf states a fully effective integrated missile defense, longer range air launch or missile strike systems to balance Iran and deal with this ongoing arms race. And we tend to forget with Saudi Arabia's modernization efforts, UAE's efforts to develop the problem that the less wealthy Gulf states have in their economies, they too are under economic pressure. And spending billions and billions of dollars on arms imports come at a direct cost to their people and not simply a matter of arms costing the Iranian people, economic benefits. Yeah, good question or good point. I, I should point out, if you'll forgive me, a divergence into the intricacies of missile defense that Qatar is um, in negotiations to buy a pave pause advanced radar, which if the GCC were to develop an integrated system that could provide early warning for all the GCC states, except maybe for Salalah in Oman, you know, the southern parts of Oman. Uh, but that's dependent on the development of a unified system. And uh, both the UAE THAAD radar and the uh, pro uh, projected Saudi and Qatar THAAD radar, again, would provide theoretically coverage for almost all the GCC areas, certainly the GCC area on the, on the uh, Gulf. But again, 
you have to have integrated uh, assets and it's unclear if that'll happen. So uh, we keep going back to the same problem. There's a couple of questions that I'm gonna condense and I'm sorry if there's any uh, uh, loss of, of nuance or knowledge. Asking about the effects of the killing of Qasem Soleimani. Uh, was that a good move or a bad move? Uh, did that help uh, uh, establish or lower the um, threshold of deterrence as I've argued, or was it just simply a, a feel good measure that allowed us to uh, pound our chest, but uh, in the long term runs counter to our own interests. The problem is any act you take that basically is an act of force will produce a counter reaction. You can't retaliate. You can't show that your deterrent is real without acting. And it doesn't matter whether you are killing a popular figure leading the Al-Quds force or striking an air base or hitting some other unit. This problem in escalation is just a reality and people tend to forget it. You can't just as the United States strike back as we have seen with the US dealing with the rocket attacks in Iraq without provoking counter reactions and an ongoing process where you can never be sure of exactly what balance this problem of escalation and counter escalation or simply retaliation is going to deal with. I think in this case, the US showed it could decisively act against a key actor or two of them. It provoked a reaction. Anything we do will provoke it. The fact that there were essentially two major casualties involved does put it back in perspective. It didn't affect an economy. It didn't affect civilians. It didn't threaten the ability of a military force in Iran to keep functioning as its own deterrent. But I think that when you ask exactly what is the balance in positives versus negatives of any act of retaliation, it's an interesting intellectual debate, but you can never measure it precisely. Right, uh, to, to just to pull on that thread a little bit, Perhaps uh, could the uh, the um, 60 minutes uh, portrayal of the Iranian retaliatory attack on Al-Assad Air Base, which uh, went into incredible detail on the um, strength of the Iranian missiles, their distance, you know, the unprecedented. Could that be taken perhaps as a sort of subtle acknowledgement saying, OK, you have retaliated. We acknowledge your uh, deterrent capabilities. Let's leave it there. Because uh, I'm trying to find the, the motive for highlighting that attack in those terms. Well, I think the fact is that all of the missile attacks that are long range and precise, mm -hmm. particularly any new ones, because after a while they ceased to get news coverage, all of them are going to be highlighted. I mean, the reality mm -hmm. is that basically whatever our longer term thinking may be, our reaction to news and military events is essentially what happened today or this week. And the tendency to overreact to this week or today is never going to go away. 
I think it's also important that these are a warning because as we have seen in a very different context in the Armenia and Azerbaijani fight, even precision guided short range drones can make a major difference in war fighting. We may well see just in the course of the next year or two, a much higher proliferation of precision guided anti-armor and short range air defense systems in this region. There's nothing stable here. We're talking cyber, we're talking unconventional warfare, modifications to smart minds, all of these changes are taking place. And these are systems that are going to alter the course of virtually every military force in this region radically over the next five years. Nothing we do short of a strange outbreak of peace is going to prevent that. <laughs> Strange, strange, but hopefully uh, not uh, distant. We have a couple uh, questions. And again, I'm condensing and I apologize for the questioners. I'm, I'm sure I'm losing something about uh, one of the more emotive issues of hostages. And, uh, you know, it really is remarkable to me. I mean, um, the legacy of uh, Iran's state policy of taking hostages and, and the amount of enmity. Um, you know, the U.S. Army has a new dress uniform, uh, you know, that the Eisenhower Brown one. Every single soldier gets issued a brown shirt to be worn with that, and every officer has to buy one. And those shirts are made in Vietnam. So every person in the U.S. Army has to buy a shirt that's made in Vietnam. And, you know, when you were a young man, that was probably unthinkable. But there's a degree of reconciliation there. It was previously unthought. But there, the issue of hostages with Iran remains emotive. Um, there currently are, you know, a number of people that the U.S. government considers to be hostages, the Iranians consider them to be prisoners. Uh, I think that most objective observers uh, don't feel that way. Um, there's been discussion of a hostage ex or a prisoner exchange, uh, which I would argue is really hostages for prisoners uh, and decoupling that from the uh, nuclear negotiations or bundling it in with the nuclear negotiations. And quite frankly, um, it's hard to um, disaggregate policy from emotion from dislike, particularly when relatives of hostages get involved and things of that nature. So could you talk about that for a bit? I think the brutal reality is that a hostage is one of the cheapest, easiest ways to conduct gray area warfare. This isn't a matter of guilt. It doesn't matter whether the hostage was a spy or a scholar or simply a tourist. You can provoke, you can demonstrate your ability to act of all the forms of retaliation or escalation, simply focusing on somebody who you are holding as a prisoner or even taking one of your own citizens who is a spokesman for human rights and freedom and visibly punishing them with a long prison sentence or torture is a way of communicating both to your own people 
and to the world what your position is and your strength as a regime. And I think as we look at this, like sort of almost ramming a US combat ship, like attacking some tanker with a relatively small mine, like shooting down an unmanned combat aerial vehicle. This type of game of playing gray area warfare, of trying to intimidate or influence or demonstrate your power. <clears throat> I mean, Iran has done other things like essentially Photoshop, missile strikes and levels of accuracy it never achieved is essentially flying through a video, a form of warfare. Yes, it is just as taking hostages. And I'm afraid we're not going to see Iran as the only country that will do this or the only movement because to some extent you see this kind of exchange taking place in very different ways between Israel and Hamas. And you see it taking place all over the world at different levels. It is a horrifying event for the families involved and <clears throat> certainly cruel to the hostage. But I think in all honesty, we have to simply accept the fact that this is the world we live in and do the best we can to free the hostages or find some way out. That is not going to unfortunately solve the problem. Okay, uh, not too cheery. I've, I've got a final question. Well, two questions that kind of come from the field. Again, I'm condensing and then we'll uh, go to Dr. Anthony. So. Um, in the last week, in the same week, uh, the U.S. Justice Department announced the indictment of five Iranian citizens for uh, attempted kidnapping of an American citizen on American soil. And at the same time, the, the administration announced that it was waiving um, sanctions, fiscal sanctions on Iranian assets held in South Korea and Japan, which are in the billions of dollars. So is there um, cohesive policy in the Biden administration. And then the follow-up to that, of course, is to compare it with the Trump administration. Was there a cohesive, coherent policy or um, was it just uh, as is often thought of with Trump uh, sailing from one uh, tweet to the next? I'm not going to touch the second uh, <laughs> that question. I think it would take several hours and be partisan to say the least. But we need to be very careful. Ensuring that you don't have American citizens kidnapped on American soil is a critical responsibility. So is trying to block Iranian development of nuclear weapons. If you are attempting to find a compromise and move forward in the JCPOA negotiations, you are going to do what you have to do to make that possible, and you're going to have to protect Americans from terrorism, kidnapping, and hostile actors as well. 
the balance is always going to be awkward. And it has been awkward <clears throat> start. Every country that says it doesn't negotiate with terrorists does. It is a politically convenient and useful thing to say. It isn't always useful to act upon. And so, yes, you have seemingly incompatible actions compounded by the fact international law doesn't always tie the relief of sanctions to some narrow constraint the US can easily enforce, particularly if the money isn't necessarily in our hands. Mm -hmm. I think the danger is that these are things that people can use in partisan ways, that it is easy sometimes to make mistakes. And certainly coordination, when you talk about the level of acts that we commit every day in the Gulf, the number of things you have to do that can suddenly create a new incident or have an unanticipated consequence, you're never going to be able to fully manage and coordinate and act effectively. There is an inherent contradiction between the two options. Well, thank you for that. It's been an honor, Dr. Cordesman, and uh, I apologize to those whose questions were mangled or condensed in the interest of time. Um, and let me throw it back now to uh, the founder and president of the National Council, Dr. John Duke Anthony. Thank you, uh, Colonel DeRoche and, uh, and Dr. Cordesman. <clears throat> uh, Colonel DeRoche asked a question about as... Um, Iran a rational actor or we are rational actors and there was brief discussion about this. <laughs> Dr. Cordesman accurately said that uh, rationality is highly dependent upon the information that one has that feeds into a rational or irrational decision. But more essential than the information is um, how to get that information and uh, one concept in word and phenomenon force and factor absent from this discussion thus far has been that of empathy. Now, in terms of uh, empathy applied to the United States, uh, one can search uh, the records that I don't think one will find any reference to the United States ever having been accused of being in surplus on the empathy front, uh, putting ourselves into the shoes souls, situations, needs, interests, concerns, goals, uh, legitimate, illegitimate of our adversaries, our partners, our friends, our allies. Uh, four uh, key pieces of empathy have been missing in this discussion and we invite either of the two of you to comment on them as you see, see fit. Uh, the aspect of none of Iran's uh, Arab neighbors, seven of them, uh, having any significant input and comment into the more than 10 years of the previous uh, round of negotiations that produced an agreement. Uh, if one is analogical or empathetic, uh, put yourself in terms of the shoes of the United States and the American citizenry. 
if a, a, a group of great powers were in negotiation with Canada or Mexico for a major strategic agreement uh, bearing on war and peace uh, implications, ramifications, possibilities, and were the United States not to be directly privy to those discussions, um, the, the quickness with which the United States would go through the roof and outrage uh, uh, could be measured only by the imagination. That's one. Uh, putting yourself in the shoes of Iran's needs, concerns, and its own perceptions is uh, an indulgence, some may say an appeasement, but it's absolutely essential if one is to get to this information, this empathy, this rationality, this predictability, this ability to prepare, this capacity to anticipate. Uh, for those high-ranking American officials that have said, uh, we will not uh, reduce or eliminate our presence in Syria until the last Iranian soldier or representative has withdrawn. And uh, this is naivety run amok. One could take today, this afternoon, tomorrow, yesterday, a convoy from Tehran all the way to Beirut uh, in a Land Rover and not be stopped at a single checkpoint in the sense that you have a straight shot from Tehran to the Mediterranean. That has not happened in more than a thousand years. For anyone to think that Iran can be induced, seduced, uh, incentivized to uh, roll back its gains from Syria, for example, let alone Iraq right next door, uh, would be naivety uh, run amok. Iran has been on a roll and a run in large measure because of opportunities that we have presented it since our arguably foolhardy, certainly disastrous, certainly in many ways counterproductive, U.S. invasion of Iraq in 2003, when Iraq represented no imminent threat to the United States, certainly had not attacked the United States or threatened the uh, interests legitimate of the American uh, people. Uh, that's the second one. Third and fourth are Russia and China. Uh, Russia, since uh, Peter the Great, Catherine the Great, have longed for a warm water port. They have one that's lukewarm in terms of two in uh, Syria on the Mediterranean, uh, but the lust and the longing forever has been through Iran and uh, through Arabia in the Gulf. Uh, and Russia is but minutes, relatively speaking, away from Tehran versus uh, the United States, which is considerably longer from mainland America, though not from Qatar, not from Bahrain, not from uh, Kuwait, not from uh, Oman. Uh, and then China, as uh, Dr. Portisman rightly mentioned, uh, the implications and the, certainly the temptations and the insinuations of America slapping on the sanctions, being rigid on sanctions, China has no sanctions on Iran that are any longer applicable. Neither does Russia. The temptations for both would be great. Their strategic interest would be legitimate, certainly understandable and altogether rational. Uh, would Dr. Cordesman or Colonel DeRoche, either or both care to comment? Uh, we're missing these four 
prisms, uh, these four lenses through which uh, to edify ourselves on the implications of what Dr. Cordesman has so forthrightly addressed. John, I think I would have to say that I am not as critical of the US position as you are. I think that empathy is something that Bezel Liddell Hart, a British strategist, pointed out, if you don't pay attention to what the enemy is doing and thinks, you are probably going to get yourself into very deep military trouble. For sure. But enemies tend to be enemies. And if there is empathy that you can probably extend to the regime in Iran, uh, the empathy perhaps stops at the people. The regime is not something that you, I think, can easily and positively influence. A lot of the instability in this region is a self-inflicted wound. And it's very difficult to know what we can do to change and deal with it. It's hard to empathize with a government that is corrupt or won't make basic improvements in development on its own. And these are issues which Iran has certainly demonstrated. I guess the one thing I'd also say is I'm very well aware of the complaints a number of Arab states made about being excluded from the negotiations. They were not formal members of the negotiations. But there was nothing particularly secret about these negotiations, and they certainly made their views known. A lot of those views would have blocked any agreement. And simply trying to have more and more partners in any kind of arms control agreement, as was pointed out, and you pointed out, even six was remarkably difficult and sometimes unpleasant. And the amount of mutual empathy among the people who were actually negotiating the agreement was sometimes rather limited. You have to make compromises. So perhaps I am not quite as critical. I think the basic issue of should you always have a positive alternative even in dealing with a hostile power? Should you always make it clear to the people of that power that you are not opposed to them or penalizing them without a reason for doing so? These are things where we perhaps could do more. But quite honestly, looking at the Gulf today, almost everybody could and should do more. And I would be often as critical of some of our Arab partners as I would be of us. Well, I would uh, echo uh, that points uh, well taken. But you rightly said if we could find something other than uh, what we have been doing, what we did before, and what seems to be over the horizon to be creative, to be innovative, to do things without precedent. 
uh, we're celebrating the, the, the Eid of the Hajj. Uh, there's nothing that would hold back Saudi Arabia or Oman, which just had its Sultan Haitham visit Riyadh in a seemingly mutually beneficial exchange between those two heads of state uh, to have uh, King Salman of Saudi Arabia invite the supreme leader of uh, Iran uh, to come and visit, uh, to commemorate, celebrate the Hajj. And while there, the two could uh, do more than break bread and break ice, uh, could engage in information exchanges to which we need not be privy, uh, but you can imagine the symbolic sea change and perceptions uh, that the two greatest regional rivals are sitting together with their heads of state uh, uh, in the land of the two holiest places in Islam. Uh, this would not have anything directly to do with the nuclear issues, but it would uh, be occurring where the atmosphere could hardly be more receptive in many ways and the moment more politically propitious in still additional ways. Your points, though, is well taken. Uh, Colonel DeRoche, if you have a final remark, you're free to make it. If not... Well, I just want to thank, I, th I think that this would be um, gilding the lily. So uh, we've got a lot to think about. There's a lot of challenges going ahead. There's been a lot of mistakes. Uh, there's been a few things done right, but the important thing I think is that uh, the call for empathy. Uh, unfortunately, empathy can't be measured or uh, artificially produced. Um, but at the end of the day, uh, you know, any kind of agreement requires uh, trust, and trust comes from empathy uh, as well as verification. So uh, I just I just hope that that's the way things are going in real life. Thank you. Um... If we had um, something other than a virtual meeting, uh, you'd have uh, uh, standing ovations for the two of you, but uh, being virtual, we have sitting ovations, even though they're inaudible. I want to thank uh, both of our resource specialists and all others who have tuned in and others who have not to encourage you to make reference to the podcast that will be shortly available for what we like to referred to as a cerebral massage. We thank both of our resource specialists, all of our listeners and viewers. Good day. <laughs>